difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. And Keith Phipps. Uh, Tasha Robinson has decided to reserve her insight into National Lampoon for Van Wilder, <laughs> uh, but she'll be with us next time. When we do that Van Wilder episode, guys. <laughs> On the first half of this episode, we discussed David Wayne's Wet Hot American Summer, the 2001 comedy that brought the offbeat silliness of his troupe The State to a big screen spoof. In this episode, we'll turn our attention to Wayne's new Netflix film, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which approaches the story of Doug Kenny, the late co-founder of National Lampoon, with a similar self-awareness and an interest in toying with biopic conventions. Will Forte stars as Doug Kenny, and Martin Mole stars as the narrator, an older version of Doug Kenny. Together, they tell the story of a brilliant but undisciplined and self-destructive comedy mind who hailed from an upper-middle-class family in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and went to Harvard, but opted to pursue a career that defied his parents' wishes. Starting with his time at the Harvard Lampoon in the 1960s, when Kenny met his partner in crime, Henry Beard, played by Dobnell Gleason, and ending with Kenny's death in 1980, a futile and stupid gesture makes the case that National Lampoon was the epicenter of 70s comedy and the wellspring for a generation of comedic talents. When National Lampoon was founded in 1970, there was no market for a comedy magazine, but Kenny, Beard, and their staff and contributors carved out a place for themselves where one didn't exist before. Their success, either directly or indirectly, spawned many talents in the field, culminating in the blockbuster comedy Animal House and its follow-up Caddyshack. We'll talk about Wayne's take on how it all went down after the break. If we're running our own magazine, we can do anything we want. We can publish knock-knock jokes. Knock-knock. Who's that? Me. Me here. Me not doing the magazine. <laughs> that can go an issue one. It's a total failure. We're selling less than half our print run. You're not going to hurt him, right? No. <gasps> what are you doing? Don't worry, I don't think there's any bolts in there. Catch gotcha. it! are protesting. The feminists hate us. What do we do to the Catholics? Liza Minnelli? We are being sued by Disney. Maybe it wasn't such a hot idea to have Minnie Mouse flashing her tits. She has pasties on. Are you ready, girls? Three, two, one. Catherine, I'm the woman you're heading off. Doug Kenny, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. We're barely able to put out a magazine. To must barely be able to do something else. The first National Lampoon movie. Laser, Laser orgy, orgy girls. Doug Kenny, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. One of the writers of Animal House. Food fight! You call this success? Mostly an excuse to party. You've ruined this company. We can't come back a failure. I do care about you, Doug. Laugh, goddammit! You need to see someone. Inside that bungalow, some of the creators of Animal House are working on their next movie, Caddyshack. And I'm sure it's going to be just as crazy. Dog, we need to decide. Is it clear he's jerking his dick off here? Yeah, because we can make it higher or lower depending on the size of my dog. These actors don't look exactly like the real people. But come on, do you think I look like Will Forte when I was 27? 
You think Will Forte is 27? Let's do this. This is for the magazine, right? So, gang, a futile and stupid gesture. I mean, th- this was something that seemed like an obvious one for me to do because I, I, I'm a waniac, as, as we've established <laughs> in the first episode. And, you know, the trailer looked to me like it was going to take the Wayne approach to the biopic and do a lot of deconstruction and, so, and kind of refresh the whole genre. So I'm going to go ahead and leave that thought there and then ask the two of you whether the film succeeded in doing that. So we don't usually talk about the films together too much before we do this podcast. But I do. I, I texted Scott something, which was like, I like what this film thinks it's doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it thinks it's doing a fairly radical deconstruction of the biopic using its cliches, but also commenting on them. And, you know, you know, that's the whole thing about we're only going to focus on these six contributors, but all these other people did it. And like, there's text up on the screen, all this sort of, here's all the plot lines we're leaving out. Yeah. And all the, all the, all the things we, we, that are inaccurate in this film. It's like, yeah, I appreciate all that, but it it just doesn't work for me, this movie. And I'm not quite sure why I'm I'm hoping to maybe use this as a sort of a therapy session to to get (laughs) to the bottom of it. But I mean, it's a fascinating subject matter. The approach should work. It's, it seems like the right way to take on this subject, but I don't know. It felt, very off to me it felt like ultimately the cliches kind of swallowed up the cleverness they're trying to bring to it yeah it really bugged me that for all the like self-conscious and self-reflexive interrogation of biopic cliches this movie also indulges some of the biggest biopic cliches Mm -hmm. without interrogating them including uh, scott i know one of your favorites the formative moments the the you know sort of explains everything and of course just the obsession with his parents Mm -hmm. and, and their approval and that isn't approached with the same sort of skepticism or winkingness that the other parts of the movie are. And I think it also, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which this isn't such a direct match with Wet Hot American Summer because Wayne did not write the film and it's based Mm -hmm. on a book biography of, of Kenny, but also just the lampoon more generally. And I do think... There is a lot in Feudal and Stupid Gesture that I laughed at, and most of it kind of has to do with the formation and the running of, of the National Lampoon. And like, it kind of made me wish that this movie was more about that than Kenny specifically. Mm-hmm. That said, like, I really love Will Forte, and I liked his performance here. I liked a lot of the banter between henry and doug and i thought that relationship was sort of the heart of the movie that that did work where the parental you know approval stuff did not so i didn't hate this movie like there, there's a lot of it that i like but it did feel like didn't quite get a passing grade or, or it just got a passing grade but it, <laughs> it didn't pass with flying colors <laughs> yeah i i'm pretty much on the same page with a few of you on it i just think it doesn't pull it off i think the moment my heart really sunk was if you recall the film walk hard which is Mm -hmm. which i think we can all agree is an absolute spoof classic at this point which was a rigorous mockery slash deconstruction of the music biopic but Mm -hmm. just biopics generally but one of the quotable lines from that film is wrong kid died right Mm, yeah and uh that is taken on its face uh, in this in a futile and stupid gesture a, a moment that is so cliched that you'd think that of all people that david wayne would be the guy to recognize that 
and unpack it, and he doesn't do it. And um, to I mean, me, I this guess w- probably run into though is dealing with a real life. You have mm-hmm. certain obligations. And you can't treat everything a real life that ends badly. Yeah, you can't treat everything with lightness and you know frippery. You know, and you do have to find some way to ground this the story, and that's how you do that here. But uh, yeah, I'm with you. It doesn't. It's work. It's hugely challenging what he's trying to do because I, that instinct to break things down is present, and it does pay off in certain respects. I mean, I, I like the the idea, the acknowledgement that the people they've cast in all these roles of famous stars don't look at all like their parts. I think yeah. that, that's that's a clever. Again, that there no, were I, there were no black uh, comedy writers and only one woman comedy writer. Like y- yeah, you know, like that. Like that's the kind of stuff that I liked about this movie's approach. Is that to have it, that kind of commentary, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, you feel like the movie is trying to be almost like a you know boogie nights esque or something like mm-hmm. a big sweeping movie about an important scene you know the the, the comedy scene you know is, set against changing times yeah. and like mm-hmm. you know an upward and downward arc you know i want to loop back to something that genevieve says which is i also very much like will forte mm-hmm. and i think he's got some real depth to his acting like on, on last man on earth mm-hmm. but i do not like him here i don't, oh, really? I don't yeah, yeah i thought i thought it was way off and i think it actually I'm not even sure it's like his fault necessarily, but I think, you know, I'd like to see Will Forte in a David Wayne movie that's not this because I think those are two sensibilities that go well together. But there's just sort of a sweetness and an absurdity to what he does well with comedy. And it doesn't match this character at all. This this sort of self-destructive person like, you know, he's portrayed as sort of like this kind of a naif who finds himself through comedy at at Harvard and, and Two beats later, he's his personality hasn't changed at all, but but suddenly he has a huge drug habit and he's a philanderer and it's like there's no progress there at all. He's still kind of doing sort of this this sketch character flatness to Doug Kenny. It just to me, there's just not a lot of depth to what he's doing there or what the film's doing, and that's that to me really took me out of the film. Yeah, there's a lack of depth. I mean, the performance doesn't work for me either, but I think the conception of the character is just not, it just seems remote to me. Well, I know, I, I'm, to actually, the point, I think the large point I'm trying to make is that Wayne and Forte are naturally warm. Their humor is warm and, and gentle mm-hmm. and humane. National Lampoon is not. National Lampoon mm-hmm. is scathing and cutting and blacker than the blackest night uh, a comedy of, of, of sort of uh, you know borderline nihilistic comedy. And, and I thought it was interesting to bring them together. And I just I think it's kind of an oil and water situation yeah, yeah. with this movie. That's a good. See, that, that's I, a good point. I, I mean, I guess I would argue that. And, and I and I will say what I liked about Forte's performance is how much it reminded me of Tandy from Last Man on Earth, which I think is is a character who is not sweet, and there is definitely you know more edginess in the writing around that character. And mm. I I like the way he blends them on on Last Man on Earth, sort of this like really detestable guy that has a an innate sweetness that almost not quite makes up for how terrible he is so he's trying (laughs) tandy's trying yeah so so maybe like admittedly maybe i was like kind of carrying that perception or of that performance and applying it here but i really feel like the problems with that character are more in the writing than they are in the performance yeah maybe that's true i mean ultimately though i didn't feel you know, this character was taking an emotional journey that I was not engaged in. And yeah. Ended up being... Well, and, it end, and the way it ends is yeah. like, it's, it's like a weird story to tell because of the way it ends. And it's like very abrupt. And there's, 
I feel like this movie's attempts to apply some sort of closure to his life is like where it just completely stumbles and falls yeah, apart. I, I, I hated know? the final scene so much. Yeah. Uh, I did like, I mean, was I, the food fight, the, yeah. oh, that was rough. Um, <laughs> oh, it was played so mawkish. Yeah. 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 Um, I thought the idea of having Martin Mull as the present day Kenny was a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And, and he's a, I love Martin Mull and it's great to see him. So I thought that was, that was when it came closest to working. I thought was, was that narrative? device yeah yeah the, it's very clever um i think what's missing for me again, again to kind of get to get back to the kenny character in his state of mind is that i think that there's an insight to be made about you know the, that relationship between comedy and darkness and depression and and uh you know the the ups and downs of these types of personalities you know not to mention these personalities coming together and clashing i mean we we all have had firsthand experience with that keith especially of being around the onion staff i mean certainly at that that original <laughs> yeah, there were... b- bunch in the mid in the mid 90s i mean that was uh, a yeah. there was just a, bu- a lot of people who were in, in various states of psychological duress just barely <laughs> putting together um, and the, the comedy was brilliant you know the comedy was brilliant but i mean you'd have one of them who would literally be curled up under a desk <laughs> I, I felt privileged to be there and, and sometimes also a little scared and out of that dysfunction and pain and depression and darkness somehow deadlines got met <laughs> and papers got produced I, maybe that's why i like i like the henry character so much and, and like i like their relationship so much because he is the get stuff done mm-hmm. part of that duo and you know and he is more grounded and but but no less comedically brilliant and i just like having him in the mix it just gives an interesting reflection of like kenny's uh, approach to comedy and like what's behind it and his issues and i don't know i what really works for this movie is for me is the doug and henry relationship i i I agree you make a good point and there's like a moment in this film when Henry decides he's not having fun anymore and Mm -hmm. he just promptly starts packing up. He said he would stick out as long as it was fun and until they got paid, you know, to be very blunt about it until Mm -hmm. they, until they were bought out. And, you know, so he did what he was expected to do. He did what he promised to do, which is something Doug repeatedly did not achieve, you know? And you can see how anything would end for either of Mm -hmm. them, how Henry is grounded enough to be able to, step away from something like that without it just being this calamity you know it, you get a sense with guys like doug that it's either success or just utter collapse that there's no way to kind of gracefully bow out whereas in real life the henry beard had a long career after this writing um not particularly ambitious humor books like miss piggy's guide to life a lot of golf humor books with leslie nielsen um, oh really yeah oj's oh. you might remember oj's legal pad bestseller. oh look at that uh where, where's where's <laughs> wow, Saddam? So many. yeah i mean apparently he did very well for himself by by them but i think maybe he felt like he got his counterculture licks in early on mercenary then, yeah look at that there's like a there's a gap between board of the rings and then you know miss piggy's guide to life that's a that's a solid uh <laughs> 20 plus year yeah. gap between those books but wow i didn't i didn't realize that that's where he went he did not go on to uh saturday night live and uh he probably doesn't give a lot of interviews just I mean, he just kind of lives his life it seems like based on this movie a very henry beard thing to do mm-hmm. well we did talk about how what hot american summer did improve for people over a long period of time over a period of years and, and decades so maybe the space between now in our next segment, making <laughs> connections between uh, the two movies, uh, maybe in that period, we'll appreciate this movie a little bit more. So we'll be right back 
after this break to talk about the connections between Wet Hot American Summer and a futile and stupid gesture. Now let me tell you what it's like to run a successful comedy empire. The more ads you sell in the magazine, the more pages you print. Someone has to write those pages. Then there's the other pieces to edit, art to commission, headlines, captions, and cartoons to fix, all on a deadline. On top of that, you expand into books, albums, and oh, the radio show based on your successful magazine is also successful, and holy shit, an hour's a lot of time to fill. Couldn't we have just called it the National Lampoon Radio Half Hour? Not that gag about Nixon's daughter. RCA's going to drop the album. Then you start a live show, and that's a hit, too. Yes, I know success is a great thing that we all want, but I'm trying to explain why maybe you can't handle it. To deal with the stress, you smoke dope, but that makes it harder to meet the deadlines, and someone else has to pick up the slack. How much time did you spend on this coupon? Well, shit, maybe a little LSD for inspiration would help, but now it's five hours later, and you're still tripping, and that thing you wrote makes no sense, even to you. You feel bad about letting your partner down. Not that one. No, that one. No, well, that one, too. Doug! You probably shouldn't stay out so late, but you want to prove that you can run with Chevy and Belushi. Tony slept with O'Donoghue's girl, and now O'Donoghue won't work with her. Anne says you're all sexist, which is true, but that's not the point. And, and oh, right, the magazine circulation is how high now? Done. You'll just be over here in your office. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And one of the things they have in common is a huge cast, <laughs> which I guess is kind of a feature of all David Wayne films, but definitely is the case with A Feudal and Stupid Gesture and What Hot American Summer, uh, which both have huge casts full of recognizable faces, or in the case of What Hot American Summer, future recognizable faces. Maybe maybe there's going to be some people I didn't know in the new film that are going to take, <laughs> whose careers are going to take off as a result. I'm not really convinced. But um, Estamo Gleason could, he's going places, <laughs> starring in a little sci-fi series. Okay. What's it called again? Um, Star Trek, I think. Oh yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, so what about what about the use of the ensembles in these films? I mean, I think in both cases you do have sort of that core character that the rest of the ensemble kind of revolves around. It's Coop in Wet Hot American Summer, and then Doug Kenny in in this. And there's like the second orbit of players: your Janine Garofalo and I, I guess Paul Rudd, and then you have you know your Damo Gleason and Martin Mull sort of occupying the same space. And then there's just a bunch of not quite outliers, but like like use as needed. Yeah. Uh, players you know that that kind of come in and out throughout and like they're often i think responsible for the most like funny or memorable little mm-hmm. tidbits but they don't hold the movie together or not as the case may be or they're not responsible for holding the movie together the way that those more central figures are yeah they kind of just show up it for probably a day or two on the set and and that's all they're needed for the big difference to me is that what hot american summer is way more democratic mm-hmm. because you, because it's basically decentralized yeah uh despite you know, much you could, much more so than you could say one. that coop somebody like coop would be the lead character but you could also say that so is you know garofalo mm-hmm. because she's the camp director which is a big risk on the part of wayne and showalter to write a script without a true main character or a true focal point this one has that but the cost of it is that you have people kind of turning up as 
John Belushi or Chevy, Chevy Chase. Chase. I really enjoyed Joe McCallis. Chevy Chase was a very yeah. clever casting choice. Um, and even even a bigger role like Tody Hendra, played by Matt Lucas, they just don't have the time or the space to, to make the kind of impact. I'll uh, tell you who does, though. Who's that? I could watch a movie about with Tom Lennon as mm-hmm. Michael O'Donoghue and Natasha Leone as Ann yep. Bates. I, that, that's that's a spinoff I wanted. I, like, I kind of wanted to follow them around instead, instead of Doug Kenny. Yeah, that segment introducing the four or six characters that they opted to focus on, like that was maybe my favorite sequence of, mm-hmm. of the film, just in terms of like, and now we're going to watch these funny people be funny in different ways. You, you yeah. know, and that's what I want from this kind of comedy ensemble. Uh, Natasha Leone's intro is so terrific yeah. responding to cat callers right is that yeah. in her oh god that's did you funny. did you guys catch the paul rudd cameo in like a, in like a photograph <laughs> in right? the yearbook he was the nobody <laughs> <laughs> yeah gotta have him in there somewhere um i would have liked him more and the, and the thing yeah. the nice thing about the movie is that it, it doesn't really care that much about matching the perfect the actor but you know you've got seth green as christopher guest <laughs> <laughs> those two those two don't look too much alike you know the big difference here is that a lot of the most of the ensemble in a feudal and super gesture is tasked with portraying real people who we have varying levels of familiarity with already so there's sort of restrictions to their characterization that mm-hmm. some respect more than others you know that i like joel McHale's chevy chase performance like it's it's really funny but it's not like really a chevy chase impersonation yeah. you, you know uh the way that say john daly's bill murray impersonation yeah um in wet hot american summer the characters their comedic persona is specific to what they're doing in that movie not any perceptions we already have yeah but there's um, there, really there's absolutely zero limitations yeah. as to where they can go with the character we can have a cook who's has these vietnam flashbacks and hallucinations and and you don't have to be true to any real person to to create that character and and yeah so it is a problem for sure you know and and the women who have to play his wives i mean those are just utterly (laughs) thankless roles and again a chance to point that out yeah failed failed i mean you know you know that's kind of the nice thing about having this device is that things that are a problem for you when you're making a biopic you can say, "Look, I know that this is a problem," and and, and like I'm you already it out to addressed you. a gender issue, you, like multiple times. Actually, you've addressed like the the sexism mm-hmm. element of, of lampoon, but then to just leave these female characters, probably the most important female characters in the movie, with apologies to Natasha Leone's yeah. you know performance, like they really don't get anything. Yeah. One of them's neglected and then leaves, and then the other one's also neglected and stays <laughs> and stays. <laughs> the end. Yeah, you know, it's just it's a matter of time and, and emphasis i guess but these are thankless roles i mean if you're going to make that argument like why did you need to include both of his relationships you know if it's a matter of of time like if you're not going to yeah. do something interesting with it don't bother yeah you, I mean, know? Well, you don't have to yeah I, I, you know one doesn't want to tell a movie what to do but <laughs> but if you want to emphasize what's good about the film maybe spending some of that currency more toward capturing how the magazine was put together mm-hmm. and how it developed and what sort of issues they put out into the world. And, and uh, I think all of that process stuff could have been both fascinating and full of fun, right? Yeah, yeah, allowed us to spend more time with that that little group. Uh, you know, that we like. Like, if you don't see, but gesture, cast almost feels too sprawling, just because of like the scope of the life it's trying to tell. Because, and if it was more focused on the lampoon, it would maybe bring that in a little bit and allow this ensemble to maybe do a little more than these like one or two memorable moments that they mm-hmm. that they each get. So, what about 
the handling of period. These are both period pieces. What Hot American Summer takes place in 1981. And this takes place, I guess, from a range of about... What late 60s, 1980. Late 60s to 1980. And so there's a lot that has to be invested in both in terms of period detail. How, how do those pay off or how, how would those two things relate? Well, I think they're going for different approaches to period, but I mean, What Out American Summer feels very right. It feels like taken from period photographs. It feels like they got the detail right. They kind of fussed over it. Um, I think it's more of a costume party approach with uh, the, the period details and feudal and stupid gesture, mm-hmm. which I think is probably more in line with what they're kind of going for with the sort of meta biopic or whatever but um i I find it less appealing visually and and less effective but i think if they really did want to do the boogie nights thing they could have could have kind of brought the verisimilitude of what hot american summer over to this but uh they don't really in feudal and stupid gestures defense like there is sort of a higher degree of difficulty in terms of of the expression of the period not just because we are covering a passage of, of many years but the the movie is just bigger i mean wet hot american summer is all in the camp you know like yeah. you, you only have to and i guess in the town but you really only have to address like what that one place looks like at that time and what the people in that place look like as opposed to what many different places across you know many different settings and different periods of time you know look like and express their era harvard new york los angeles hawaii yeah what did you guys uh this is a little bit of a tangent but somewhat connected what do you guys think of the transition from new york to la walking out of the club in new york onto the soundstage in la then just like taking off their clothes i like yeah, 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 that's yeah. clever. I mean, you know, I, we've been mostly bagging on this film, but it's not. Yeah. It's okay. I just wish it were better. Yeah, there's, uh, so, yeah, so there's so lots I of parts wanna, of it that are good. Want to harp? But... On, I just tend to harp on the things that don't work in it. But in terms of period, it is done on a bigger scale. It is. It does have to cover a longer period of time. But you think about how much just you know a shirt in what had American Summer or a brand that no longer exists or just little things like that how much they pay off and accumulate and give you this really immersive feel for the period that's so critical to that film's success this feels too much like a generic period piece rather than something that's been fully invested in the same way uh, in terms of just making those specific details of production design uh, and costumes pay off in terms of just giving you, giving you some more laughs and then also making it, you just feel like you've gone back in time. It kind of fails for me in that respect. Another connection between these two films is metacomedy. Mm-hmm. Again, something I'd hoped for more of in A Feudal and Stupid Gesture was more acknowledgement and more meta humor unpacking the conventions mm-hmm. of the biopic, which I think is something that Wayne just does so well, I mean, as well as anybody. So why not? Why not as much here? Yeah, it kind of felt like everything in, done in this was done better in American Splendor, frankly. Yeah, but I mean, is it? But did that have the same level of meta humor? Or was meta humor really a? Uh... I mean, you can't. Well, they have. They had real Harvey P. Carr. That's true. And, you know, interacting with fictional Harvey P. Carr. Yeah, that's true. Not an option here, American Splendor, was, American Splendor was a title that was brought up to, as a possible pairing with... And I read a thing where Wayne said it was definitely one of the inspirations for this film as well. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, don't, you don't have Doug Kenny around to comment on the movie in the same way that Harvey P. Carr did 
in American Splendor, and so he they conceive mm-hmm. of this character of played by Martin Mull, which is a, a very clever idea. And then you you have Wayne himself off screen doing the yeah. the interview, and you know the film really has you primed for that to be just the way it's going to be. I mean, it opens with that relationship, but it just uh, winds up being mostly a framing device except for a couple of different mm-hmm. points during the film where Mull shows up, kind of talks to us directly and breaks the fourth wall and gets into that meta humor that I think we expect a little bit more of. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the moments of meta humor in Feudal and Stupid Gesture work. It's just that there aren't enough of them or they're kind of scattershot in their application. Whereas in Wet Hot American Summer, I don't know, like, but now I'm, I'm like struggling to think of a lot of specifically meta moments in Wet Hot American Summer as opposed to parodic elements. So what 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 are some meta moments that you're thinking of in, in Wet well, Hot? Well, the, the going to town thing, I guess, so it sort of like takes it out of the reality of the film and brings mm-hmm. you back into it. I guess it's less meta commentary. than. Yeah. Oh, and of course, the, I mean, the, the, the obvious example is the um, coach giving the speech to oh, his... Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, about, yeah. you know, how this how these it's things It's just been done go. before, yeah. yeah. Right, it's just... Well, and, and I guess the in Wet Hot, just sort of the conceit of the last day of camp and like what I was talking about of just like cramming an unrealistic amount of stuff into the conceit of one single yeah. day yeah and then, you know. I mean, the fact that the, the fact that that relationship between garofalo and david hyde pierce ends in like a pregnancy the next morning yeah. i mean it, it you know with, without breaking the fourth wall necessarily in order for those jokes to play we have to be you know aware of these conventions that are being upended by the movie and in, in, in that respect you know it's meta humor yeah yeah i guess i was thinking more in terms of fourth wall breaking of the sort that we get in feudal and stupid gesture and i i don't know if there are any any fourth wall breaking moments no. in wet hot I mean, that's a huge that's a huge decision yeah. to have to make so i think it's almost certainly wise that that decision is not made in what had american summer but it is feudal and stupid gesture is like that that is how it's going to do it and the reason that character exists is to is to break the fourth wall is to break the fourth <laughs> wall and to kind of do the biopic differently with a lot of commentary and intelligence i guess about what the cliches are and you know being able to point out elements of the story that we'd probably roll our eyes at if they were played straight or sometimes it doesn't point (laughs) out and then we roll our eyes anyway yep so who knows but i guess the last thing i wanted to touch on well to get meta again for a second is distribution then and now um with what hot american summer we talked about the journey that that film took and you know back when back in the old days when they had theatrical windows and and video windows and and films found their way through the culture in a much different way than they did today and you you could track that journey which in this case was quite a dramatic one from Sundance where it was not as well received as it might have been to theaters where nobody saw it and it had a lot of really bad reviews and then through you know, video when it started to pick up some steam and then to various revival screenings, et cetera. And then, and of course it's spun off into a couple of Netflix series and is, is I think pretty widely acknowledged as, as the comedy classic that I think we believe it to be. That's a real journey, a futile and stupid gesture. What, <laughs> what, what can we even tell about that? You know, it, yeah. you think about like what, it, what is success? Success is not, not visible in that case. I mean, maybe, if Netflix tells us 
a futile and stupid gesture is their most watched film ever. We can't verify that. We, and Netflix would never tell you that. They, they would never tell us that. We we, we wouldn't. They famously you know, do not share. Yeah, you know, or maybe they would. You know, they find some way to make a prequel or sequel or something to, to defy the critics or something. But it's it's a strange fate for a movie like this to have. What about its longevity? I mean, what I don't know. Is there something depressing? I guess about it. Yeah, I find that about Netflix films in general. I have done this term before, and I I. I I don't want to be all anti-Netflix because, hey, you bring a lot of movies to people that wouldn't see them otherwise. Yeah. But just culturally, we don't really have a found a way to register whether or not it's having a kind of cultural impact uh, beyond like conversations on Twitter. I mean, I talked to some of my coworkers who actually really liked this movie and, and you know, ate it up and thought it was very successful and mm-hmm. were excited to talk about it. But that's just, I mean, literally anecdotal. It's not really that many outlets reviewed it i mean we did an interview with mull and gleason that was very pleasant but you know it turns actually reviewing it kind of snuck up on us and i I don't know it's uh what is its trajectory i mean what is it it just it's kind of like thrown off into the it's like part of the content mill and it's it gets top spot on on netflix for a few days and then it didn't even get that for me i i i I watched it the day after it premiered and i had to go searching for it it gets knocked off by the polka king or something a week later which i watched it was fine the polka king yeah okay (laughs) i wanted to watch that yeah but then you know kind of want to watch it showed up on netflix like oh i should watch that and i kind of forgot about it which is is like you know i think the larger point of what what happens with netflix yeah and and, but, but it's also i think like kind of early in this new netflix paradigm to like know what it's gonna do for the longevity of of these films because like if i were to be optimistic about this i'd say that feudal and stupid gesture and you know some other netflix films i've liked sort of but not but not loved like they they benefit from being available in a format where you don't have to pay for a ticket like you do yeah. pay for it but you don't think of it in terms of paying for it you know you can watch from the comfort of your home and it, it's a very low stakes like viewer commitment and when you're dealing with a movie that is like just okay or like you know i think like maybe having those lower stakes will maybe like inflate it in your estimation where higher stakes of having to go to the theater and pay for a ticket it feels like the movie maybe has a slightly higher bar to clear. So like Netflix being home to those sorts of movies that can, you know, sort of be casually discovered and casually watched and maybe have casual affection uh, given to them by the viewer. Maybe that will create a sort of longevity for this, this movie if it does indeed deserve it, which Maybe we're all wrong, and in ten years, this is, this is going to be a classic in, in true Wayne fashion. Yeah, true. I, you know, my thing is, I, I don't want to sound like you know the Catskills guy with my sleeping pelt, uh, <laughs> uh, in my cave drawings, saying that everything old is good, and this new distribution model is going to be great. And everyone from uh, Chicago to New York to uh, Des Moines, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite. At Chagrin uh, Falls, Ohio, Chagrin, a real place. Chagrin, exactly. But, People of Chagrin Falls are not going to have to search far for this movie. It may, it, you know, so it's going to get a, a lot of eyes on it. So I, I should be positive about that. But you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, of our own jobs now, doesn't it? In the <laughs> sense that you just, in the sense that you write a piece of you know an article or a review or feature or whatever it gets put out into the world it it occupies the top feature slot and then and then it's off into the ether forever it's out there if you want to find it yeah but it's not 
it's not as opposed to the good old days where something would be put on print and then you know line a bird cage and then never read again yeah i mean that's that's always kind of the been the nature of our jobs i think our jobs were better when they were shot on film it's It's kind of of a warmer (laughs) look to them you know yeah you could feel like you get the newsprint in your hands right yada 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 but there is something kind of just like weird about there's no window for this thing (laughs) like there's one window and that is tossing it onto netflix along with just an avalanche of other stuff but uh, it is i'm looking at my netflix page now and it is trending so i guess that's another way um i like to think we're responsible for that it's trending (laughs) next to uh bright uh blinders and friends reruns yeah well let's what we'll check in again this was we are recording this the wednesday after it was dropped on netflix we'll see uh, where it's if it's still trending uh next wednesday but for now what hot american summer is currently streaming on stars and uh, the usual pay services uh and you can but it's not streaming on netflix where you can also find you know a bunch of other uh what hot american products season <laughs> one and season two of the very strange spinoff show uh a futile and stupid gesture is currently on netflix uh where will presumably remain for eternity <laughs> uh we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I'll, you know, I ended up watching a lot of interesting stuff this last month, and I'm going to tell you all of them right now. No, I'm going to say one, one thing um, that maybe isn't on a lot of people's radars is that back in December, Olive Films, a Chicago-based company that puts out uh, nice Blu-rays of movies that might otherwise fall through the cracks of the Blu-ray world, put out a really nice restored edition of Elaine May's first film, A New Leaf, which kind of had a troubled production uh didn't really get seen that much picked up a following over the years but like a lot of elaine may's movies has been kind of hard to find lately you can find ishtar the still divisive ishtar uh is fairly easy to track down and and i think if you share some of our sensibilities you'll agree it's actually pretty good um it's like great uh, it's first half is great yeah second half i don't know yeah but um heartbreak kid her best film was a huge hit you can you can see the the remake very easily, but but the original is not uh, easy to see. Uh, this one, however, you know it's it's on Blu-ray, and you know you can, maybe it'll turn up some other places there. But you know it's worth shelling out for it. it it's a uh, ultimately sweet dark comedy uh, starring Walter Matthau, cast a little bit against type as a person of a aristocratic background, but very much in type as sort of a a wastrel slob, <laughs> misanthrope, <laughs> who the movie is put into action by him. Um, realizing he spent all his money he has no money and and he's sort of gleefully informed by this uh by a lawyer who uh, is is happy to see his his downfall uh so he schemes to wed and then kill a woman with a, a fortune played by Elaine May. But, uh, you know, true true to the film's title, there is a little bit of a, a, of a new leaf turned over at some point, but it's that is saved until, until very close to the end. Uh, and most of the time it's just Water Mathau being uh, a curmudgeon and uh, uh, scheming to get some money in the worst way possible. It, it is a delight. You know, it, it's not a perfect film. It, it, the, the last, it kind of, kind of bogs down toward the end. There was originally a three-hour cut that uh, Elaine 
Iron May fought to release. I can't imagine that being better than this, uh, which is actually quite good in its current form. Uh, although I would love to see May's version at some point. But you know, that's an Elaine May film I haven't mm-hmm. seen, though I love uh, the Heartbreak Kid, and she has. It sounds like it's caustic, which is is it is that is that yeah? Right it's, 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 she it's has caustic. that sensibility. I like her comedy cuts pretty deep. It does. It's it's kind of kind of daffy, and there's a sweetness to it ultimately, mm. but it, it takes a long way to get there. And the best sequence involves Mathal coming in and finding that her house is full with these servants led by Doris Roberts, who's hilarious, who was just taking advantage of her, taking advantage of her, of her money, <laughs> yeah. just writing checks for themselves and living this whole lifestyle by sponging off of her. Um, yeah, and, and him being, being, even as a person of a very low character, being shocked by, by this discovery. <laughs> Sounds like an Elaine May film. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, well, I wanted to recommend a film from 2017 called Marjorie Prime. Uh, this mm. is a speculative fiction take on the talking head indie drama directed by Michael Amareda and adapted from a play by Jordan Harrison, uh, starring the great Lois Smith as Marjorie, an aging woman with degenerative memory loss. Uh, she lives with her daughter and son-in-law, played by Gina Davis and Tim Robbins, who provide Marjorie with a hologram to talk to, a hologram that takes the form of a much younger version of Marjorie's dead husband and is played by John Hamm. Uh, The hologram is sort of a blank slate software that learns and adapts as it converses with people and thus exists primarily as an embodiment of Marjorie's imperfect memories of her husband. The concept sort of expands from there, but I don't want to spoil it. So I'll just say that as befits an adaptation of a play, this is a very dialogue driven film that lives and dies by its performances. And luckily, Marjorie Prime has four excellent performances at its center. Uh, It almost feels wrong to highlight just one because the interplay of the four actors is so central to this movie's success. But I'll just say it is such a pleasure to watch Lois Smith as Marjorie. And Almarita strikes a nice balance, I think, between highlighting his actors and sort of subtly fleshing out the near future world in which they live through his direction. This is ultimately a meditation on memory framed within a light science fiction conceit. And those two elements come together in a manner that's compelling without being really flashy or self-conscious about it and allows you to really bask in and appreciate the four performances at its center. Uh, I approached this movie with mild curiosity and came away from it pretty enamored, so I'd suggest checking it out. Amazon Prime subscribers can stream it free there, and it's available to rent pretty much everywhere else. Marjorie Prime. Did you see this? Marjorie Prime you can find on Amazon Prime. Shouldn't be that hard to remember. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did see this movie, and Lois Smith has been making every all of the various ballots that I've been turning in for Best Actress. Some people have been trying to put her in Supporting Actress, which I don't get. She's yeah. she's uh, the, the lead yeah. of the film she, without the, question. Her name is in the, is in the title, yeah, her character's she, name. <laughs> but it is, you know, it's a... A chamber piece. I mean, yes. you, you really do you leave that house a uh, little bit? A little bit, yes. Um, but, but there's a lot of it's a lot of interiors, and and it's it's def- certainly feels like a play, but very well acted, and, and I think quite nicely staged. It has that. It does have a philosophically loaded sort of sci-fi quality to mm-hmm. it, as well as being you know a very human story um, about uh, love and memory and and family and that sort of thing. So I, I was uh, suitably impressed. So I, I I'm backing you up on this one. Yay. Yeah, I need to see it. I, I like Amorita. He did a film called Experimenter a couple mm-hmm. years ago. About that was Stanley cool. Milgram. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, Experimenter really, is really, really good. stuck with me. I thought about that movie yeah. a lot. Since really cool it. use of uh, of back projection in that one too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, uh, Scott, what do you got for us? Um, I've got something that might be a little bit harder to find because uh, it's really just an opening in New York um, and might expand a little bit from there. It almost certainly feels like it's going to be living on Filmstruck forever once it finally arrives. But uh, this is Abbas Kiarostami's final film, 24 Frames, I wanted to recommend. Kiarostami, of course, 
the great Iranian master behind such films as uh, Taste of Cherry, Close Up, and Certified Copy. 24 Frames would not be a suggested starting point <laughs> for Kiristami. Uh It is a, a very challenging film, uh, but I think it's a really terrific end point. All the film is, it, the, fil- the film's title is, is what it is. It is 24 frames. Um, one, fr- uh, one frame is a painting. The other 23 frames are photographs. Um, and what he's done is basically animation. He's taken these 24 shots and he's animated them through digital manipulation um he starts with the brugel painting the hunters in the snow which is you know is still for a moment and then suddenly you know some black smoke rises out of a chimney and some birds start to move around and you kind of get a sense of like where the film is going to go from there the rest is just photographs that he's taken that he's expanded but the manipulation at play is not cartoony in any way it's what he imagines happened either before or after the taking of a photograph. So it's like in each, each frame is like four and a half minutes long. Um, you know, it does feel a little bit more like a museum installation piece than something you would normally encounter at an art house, but it's beautiful and it gives you a lot of space to think, which is something that uh, his films are all about. Uh, the audience kind of completing the film and, that sort of deal and there's a lot of that at play here i don't think i've ever seen digital effects used in such a subtle way as they are here so that's pretty uh, clever and then i think there's that rare opportunity to see a director or an artist who knows this is going to be his final work and being able to go out on those terms that reminded me a little bit i mentioned in my review of david bowie's black star i mean that, that's an album that was um written with, with with knowledge of what was to come and and um you know this film was completed uh, are mostly completed by Kiristami as he was on his deathbed. And uh, the 24th frame is so beautiful and wonderful and so Kiristami that, uh, you know, if you're a fan of his, and this is really a for fans only type of experience, I'd uh, highly recommend checking it out. So if you like Kiristami, I would really make this a priority. This is not some kind of doodle. This is this is a pretty important work and a really good uh, way to close out a great career yeah you're talking to me sounds like something i want to see i'm i'm a fan for sure and that's it for this week's edition of the next picture show our next episodes come out february 20th and 22nd Genevieve, what are we discussing? Monsters have historically been good for Universal Studios, which owes much of its early success to two waves of monster movies. The first, in the early 1930s, brought us Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and others. The second, ushered in by The Wolfman in 1941, gave Universal another boom period filled with sequels and crossovers. But by the 1950s, monsters weren't packing them in like they used to, and it had been a long time since the studio created one memorable enough to stand beside its most famous creations. That changed in 1954 with the release of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Directed by Jack Arnold, the film put a contemporary science fiction-inspired spin on the monster movie formula, sending some ill-fated scientists to the Amazon in search of the missing link between land and sea animals. 
They find it, and then some, in the form of the Gill Man, a kind of human-fish hybrid who menaces them and, in the climax, kidnaps a fetching expedition member and takes her to his lair. That film and the finale's sexual subtext made a deep impression on Guillermo del Toro, whose 2017 film The Shape of Water works as a kind of fairy tale extension of Arnold's, imagining another gill man, this one taken out of his natural habitat and brought to a lab in 1950s Baltimore, and the consequences of him striking up a relationship with a mute custodial worker. The latter couldn't exist without the former, and both in their own way offer reflections of 1950s America, the limits of science, and who gets a voice in determining the direction of history. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Wet Hot American Summer, A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode... Where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find my work at the culture section at Vox.com, and I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? You can find me at Uprox.com, where I'm editorial director of film and television, and you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. And our, our absent co-host, Tasha Robinson, you can find her on Twitter at uh, Tasha Robinson, and she's film and TV editor at The Verge. Dot com and she'll definitely be on our next episode. Uh, you can get your Tasha fix. <laughs> then I'm Scott Tobias, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Vulture, uh, where I just published a gigantic list of uh, Francis Ford Coppola films ranked. <laughs> uh, so that, that you can pretty work, simple undertaking. Work for your you, way huh? through that. <laughs> Uh, or, or I will just be just about to publish that anyway, depending on when, when you listen to this. And I'm the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog, uh, which just uh, posted a humdinger of a piece about uh, the branding of Werner Herzog. Um, so please check that out if you get the chance. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcast and the Penipoli Network. Please tune in next time. And every morning when I'd awake was a smile upon my face. I'd take a look around and I'd say, I fucking own this place. And if I fall off a cliff and I'm saying if, it was just what I wanted to do. I had the time. 